Charles Simeon was called the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge in, in no, on November the 10th, uh, 1782. But many in the congregation, because he was appointed, many in the congregation where he was appointed rejected him. They didn't like him and they, they didn't want him to be the pastor there. For five years, he had, um, he, there, was a, there was an afternoon, there was a, it was their custom to have an afternoon service. And it was customary for the pastor to preach in the morning service and to preach in the afternoon service. But the people in the church didn't allow him to preach in the afternoon service. For five years, they had another person that was a favorite of theirs, and they would have him preach. So Simeon started an evening service, and then the church trustees or the wardens, they locked the doors of the church. Um, and so um, after he, they locked the doors of the church, he installed new locks and had new locks put in, and the wardens of the church then came and took out the old locks, and they put new locks in, and so then he canceled the evening service because that wasn't working. And the people that owned the pews, they had pew rents, and the people that owned the pews were opposed to him, and so they locked their pews and refused to allow anyone else to use them, and they never attended. So he would preach to the galleys, and, uh, but, he, but nobody was sitting on the main floor. And this went on for years and, and years. And so then he, at his own expense, purchased... Uh, chairs to sit in the aisles and in the corners and so forth. And then the wardens of the church, the trustees came and they took the chairs and they threw them into the, into the alley. So he had a very, very difficult time. Um, Simeon tried to visit the people that opposed him, but they would not allow him uh, to do that. And so for 10 years, uh, the opposition was so strong against Simeon at Trinity Church that it was very difficult going. And in 1792, he was helped by a court decision uh, that uh, was allowed him to unlock the pews and let other people come in and sit in the locked pews. John Piper wrote a miniature biography of Simeon in which he says, Simeon exerted his influence through sustained biblical preaching year after year Simeon endured through the opposition and he pastored the Trinity Church faithfully and fruitfully for 54 years. There's my hero right there. And thank you so much for not, you know, locking the doors or doing all those mean things. How can you continue faithfully and fruitfully in service of the Lord when you have opposition? You know, usually our opposition isn't coming from uh, church members and so forth. It, it comes from without, in the world, the flesh, the devil. There's a lot of opposition in your life or, or emptiness or loneliness or difficulty. How do you continue? When you, how can you be faithful even when you're kind of like the minority, if you will, and there's much opposition that you face? And that's what we're going to talk about today in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3, and the text today is Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, and you'll see some helpful stuff about how to endure opposition, all of which we all have it in some way or another. So this is the church in Philadelphia, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 2, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 3, and look at verse 7. Uh, through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. 
I see, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, if you've been in this series of messages, you know that there are five things that are common to almost all of these letters. And they are these things that Jesus identifies himself, usually, not in this case, but usually he identifies himself out of the vision that's in Revelation chapter 1. But he gives an identity, and that identity is specific to this particular church. He does that here. And then he tells about what the church is doing that's wrong. In the case of Philadelphia, he doesn't have anything to say about what they were doing that was wrong. And then he tells about what they were doing that's right. He commends, if you will, he condemns them for this. He commends them for that. And then the fourth thing he does is he tells them what he wants them to do. And then finally, he gives a promise to those who overcome. Now, remember this. These were letters written miraculously by God through Christ, through the angel, to the specific churches. But he also knew and intended for these to be read by us. In his sovereign purposes, he knew that we would have a Bible open in our lap or we would be scrolling to the passage today and that we would be studying it and that it would have something to do with it. It's really clear in this text in particular, you can tell these different seven churches were actual churches in an actual space and time and a place in history. We know that. But we also know as the churches, as we go further through the letters to the churches, the thing that's very obvious is there are these kind of enigmatic, mysterious references to things that have to be bigger than just one little church in one little place. And that's going to be really clear today. There's going to be some language and references to things that are like far in the future too. So it's really, in other words, the reason I'm telling you that is I want you to listen to what I'm saying. Because it's God, the Holy Spirit, is going to hold each of us like responsible for what he says. Plus, it, it's, it's written there for our instruction. It's written for our encouragement. So it will help us in our lives. So this is like a letter to single moms who really have it hard and who worry about their kids not having a dad in their life. This is for single moms. This is written for the guy who works in a place where To be a Christian means you're probably not going to get promoted. You're not going to do well. This is a letter for guys like that. This is a letter for young people that are thinking about what what am I going to do with my life? And what's my life going to be like in the future? And what kind of, what should I spend my life doing? This is a letter for kids. (laughs) This is a letter for elderly people who've been here a long, long time. And they've seen a lot of stuff. And they have worries and they have concerns. This is a letter for For elderly people, this is a letter for us. You'll see it very practically. All of us have some kind of pressure or opposition that we go through. And the Philadelphia church was a small church that was very much 
under opposition, and we'll see that opposition. Let's back up and look at Jesus' self-identity. We'll just read it right now. It's in verse 7. He says, These things says he who is holy, who is true, and he has the keys of David. This is how he identifies himself. In a moment, I'll tell you why he does that. Because this passage all kind of works together. And these things he says, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. So he says three things about himself. He says, church, listen to me. I'm holy. Who's talking here? Jesus takes on, you understand there are communicable and incommunicable attributes of God, right? You've heard of this? In other words, God is holy and communicates to us a degree of holiness, but no man will ever be fully and completely holy like God. When Jesus says, I am holy, it's a claim of deity. Just so you know, that's kind of important. You you think, why is that practically important? It's super practically important. The one true God of the entire... People worship all kinds of stuff, but Jesus is God. He is the only one true God. That would be a really important thing for us to really keep in mind. He says, I'm holy. And then he also says... And I'm, not only he says, I'm holy, but he says, I am also true. I am truth. I am the truth. He makes exclusive truth claims. These are, again, they're claims of, of deity, and you're going to see how important they are. And then he says something kind of crazy, or kind of enigmatic, kind of mysterious. Like, why did he say that? He says, I have the keys of David. When I open, no one can shut. When I close, no one can open. Well, that's kind of mysterious, right? Would you say that about yourself? Well, of course you wouldn't say that about yourself. You're looking at me like, he'll, if you just be really quiet, he'll answer all of his own questions. <laughs> That's how it works. Now, you would never, if you met a friend and he goes, hey, I'm holy, I'm true, and I have the key that opens everything and closes everything. If I close it, nobody can open it. If I open it, nobody can close it. Who do you know that talks like that? You'd have to be a pretty big deal to talk like that. You'd have to be either deranged or, or, or God. God is like, hey, I I want you to know there are going to be people in your life that are going to say that they're perfect or they're true or they're going to let you in or they're going to keep you out. And you need to understand that's me. I'm the one who's holy. I'm the one who's true. And I'm the one with the keys. Guys, listen to me. This would be a very serious thing for you to have in your brain if you're like a young person, you're just starting out in life. There is one God. His son is Jesus. He's going to determine your eternal destiny, and he has the ability to bless you. He has the ability to curse you. You might want to keep that in mind. That would be really practically helpful to think about. And that's also true with the church in Philadelphia and the city of brotherly love. What do they do wrong? Well, there's no record of them doing wrong. We know they did because nobody's perfect, but Jesus doesn't condemn them for anything. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say anything about anything that they've, they've done wrong. He does commend them in verses 8 through 11, and he says some interesting things there. Let's look in verse 8. I know your works. And remember, he says this all the time. I know, I see, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. No one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, have not denied my name. In verse 9, he talks then uh, to them about the opposition they're getting from what he calls, and I love how he you know, he's so tender and careful with his words, the synagogue of Satan. People don't talk that way now about false religion, do they? They don't go, that's the synagogue of Satan. They go, the other great faiths of the world. That's not the way Jesus would say it. He'd say the synagogue of Satan. I like him, don't you? 
Yeah. Um, and then verse 10 says something really interesting that theologians have really kind of like wrestled with and weighed, and we'll do that same thing. He says, because I've kept you from my, because you've kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test the world and those who dwell on the earth. Wouldn't you love to understand what he's talking about there? I will keep you from the hour of trial that's going to be over the whole earth. Hmm. So, First of all, he says, an open door. This is carrying on from what he calls himself. I'm the one who opens the door and no one closes. Closes the door and Owen opens. And I've opened the door to you. We understand this better when we get to verse 9 and we see that they have this opposition from the Jews. The Jews are saying, you're out. We have put you out of the synagogue, which means you're outside of God's favor, which means you're going to suffer God's judgment. You're out. And they were the ruling party. And there, was a, there were temples to pagans, but there was this strong, powerful Jewish synagogue. And that was the source of opposition for this little church, this good little church of Philadelphia. They were crushing them. And they were closing them out. And they were saying, the door is closed to you because we're in charge of that. And then Jesus comes along. He says, I'm the one who opens the doors. I'm the one who closed the doors. And I have opened the door for you. That's what he's saying. I set before you an open door. Every once in a while, somebody will say, well, this is about opportunity for the ministry, but that isn't true to the context of this at all. That certainly would be the effect of being a genuine Christian. You would have opportunity. But that's not what he's saying, I don't think, to the church here. He's saying to the church, even though the synagogue of Satan, the Jews, that he talks about in verse 9, have said, you're out, I've said, you're in. I've set before you an open door. And he says, even though you are of little strength, it's not a strong church. It wouldn't be a wealthy church. It wouldn't be a large church. This is so encouraging, isn't it? For me, so much of the ministry in our modern time is pressure to succeed. It is such pressure, constant pressure. The leaders of your church, pray for them. Because they have pressure on them to make everything work. They've got to make, they've got to see to it that all the programs function right. They've got to pay all the bills. They've got to organize everything. It's an, or, and there's a lot of pressure. And then of course there's the judgment. Like it needs to get bigger. It needs to be a bigger deal. It's like, we all like that. That's good. If it's genuine increase that came from God, but you don't see this language in the letters to the churches. Bill, this is, this should be really encouraging. Mr. Bill church planter, because you can't, and Tamara, you can't go down there. You know, like you don't have a thousand yet, right? It's like, no, it's like New Testament, isn't it? You're just like, there's Lydia, you have coffee with her. Bill Branks is with us and Tamara. They're church planters in Detroit. And they're like on the cutting edge, just like we're talking about pioneer church planning. Just down there and just inviting people to coffee and just, do, you know, right? This is what the church looks like. It's surrounded by the enemy. It's surrounded by people that don't understand it. Some who would like to crush it and oppose it. People who, and then, and they're trying to make their way, make their way out of that. It's a faithful church, but it's really small. Philadelphia was a faithful church, but it didn't have a lot of money and it didn't have a lot of members, but God didn't say anything bad about it. That's just very encouraging to me. I, I love reading that. Does that encourage you, Bill? I said, should, amen. And then it says, you have a little strength, but you have kept my word. And then he says this, and I like this because it kind of ties to the last church. You have kept my name. That's a big deal. Remember last week we were talking about this because there was the big synagogue there too, and there was pressure. And if, in other words, you in that culture, you could be almost considered Jewish and you wouldn't get opposition so much. And so if you didn't name the name of Jesus as exclusively the Messiah, 
then you could get along pretty well and you wouldn't have so much persecution. But once you named the name of Christ as the exclusive God, then you are going to be in trouble. Does that remind you of anything? The, the worst things and the best things are going to happen to us when we name the name of Jesus, right? So if we name his name, then people are going to go, you're weird, you know, you're, you're, you're odd, you're, you're not that smart. We probably should either drug you or put you in an institution of some kind. You know, you think Jesus is the only God. You know, where, what rock did you crawl out from underneath of? You're obviously not very enlightened. You're not very educated. You haven't been around the world. You haven't seen the great cultures of the world. You know, you're just one of those kind of ignorant, backwoods, snake-handling, Bible-thumping fundamentalists. I'm like, we're going to handle snakes only once a year. It's going to be tonight. Just kidding. You're like, really? I want to see that. But when you say, Jesus is Lord and I name him, all of heaven starts to sing. He includes you. You say, he says, you own my name, I own your name. You speak my name, I speak your name. You're going to see that at the end of this. It's just powerful. This is practical. This is simple. It's what I said last week. I'll repeat it. And that is one of the most profound things that you can ever do just to help you grow in the Christian life is be, just get the name of Jesus right out there. Let everybody know you're a Jesus follower. And you won't have to witness because when you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, people start asking you questions. And when you answer them, you'll be witnessing. You won't have to have a witnessing plan. They will start pressing you and you'll have opportunity just let them know. And then, so he says, and this I commend you for. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Those are the synagogue of Satan in verse 9 there. Those are the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews, but they're not. And they lie. That's why he says, I don't lie. Like they lie. I don't lie. That's kind of, and he's, in every one of the letters, it's like that. Jesus is kind of like in your face there on that. And it's interesting to me that he doesn't say to the little church in Philadelphia, I need you to stand up against that synagogue. I need you to oppose that synagogue. I need you to push back against that synagogue. I need you to convert that synagogue. Not what he says. He says something really interesting. He says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will, I will, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. I really believe the theologians call this uh, eschatological. Isn't that a cool name? You get more money if you use big words like that sometimes, I think. Eschatological. It means it has to do with last things. Now, this isn't just a, a little localized thing. Now, the language in verses 8, 9, and 10, they start to get like, wait a minute. This is talking about something localized. and so, But it's also talking about something that's off in the future and that's bigger than just this church. And that's what's happening here. He's talking about a soul harvest of Jewish people coming in the future someday. He's not saying, I'm, I'm forcing people. He's actually going to refer to this later in the book of Revelation. You're going to see it fleshed out more. That there's going to be a time when there are, like, spirit-filled, a large number, hundreds of, almost 200,000, 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are going to be seeing people come to faith. And many of them are going to be, a large number of Jewish people are going to yield to the Lord. Literally, that's what the Bible teaches. And I think he's referring to that. He's saying, don't worry about their opposition. And you don't have to fight them. And you don't have to outvote them. Because I'm going to sweep a lot of them into the kingdom. They're going to fall on their knees. And they're going to see that I loved you. That's a great encouragement to us, isn't it? People around us who don't get it, they don't know Jesus. They use his name for a curse word. But one day they will know that he loved us 
and he will love them. Many of them will come to know him. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. And then, so he says, I'm the true, holy, true key of David. And by the way, key of David, this would be a special reference to Jewish people. They would get that, right? What, and what is this worldwide hour of trial in verse 10? Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That's just really interesting, isn't it? What is that? What do you think? Did you read this this week and you have it figured out? Anybody? Yeah. Um, well, it, it could be simply that there locally there was, a, there was a time of difficulty, a time of trial, and that Jesus was going to help them persevere through this time or help them persevere through this time of trial. That's not unlikely. Uh, and that may very well be what it, what it means. But it, it is interesting, though, to, to read it carefully and to compare it to other scriptures in Revelation because it almost seems like it's talking about something that's lots bigger than just a local thing. And, and it's lots longer in endurance. It happens later. If you look at the first part of verse 11, you'll know that that is true. Because what does he say in the first part of verse 11? Behold, I come quickly. He's saying, behold, I'm coming quickly. Has he come yet? Not yet. So we know that part. He said it to them. But it wasn't going to happen for at least 2,000 years. But quickly, the idea is, could be any time, imminent. The scriptures teach the imminence of Christ's return. Meaning that many of the scriptures that talk about Christ's return, and many do... Talk about Christ's return could happen at any time. So it's like we should always be ready. It's like dad is coming home sometime this afternoon. We don't know when, but be ready. Don't have your bikes in the driveway. Dad's coming home, you know. Or maybe let's change the figure a little bit and say, hey, dad's been gone on a trip. We're looking forward to having him home. So uh, let's not have to make our beds when he gets here. Let's see to it that when he gets here, all that's done so that we can love him and we can be with him. And we don't know when he's coming. So let's just always be ready in case he comes, that he can see that we were always ready. Here is, um, here is a reference to the second coming. And, of course, the theme of Revelation is really simple. And that is, heaven is wonderful, earth is filled with chaos and fallenness, and, and up in heaven Jesus is going to come, and he's going to bring heaven to earth and make heaven and earth one someday. Make sure you're on the right side when that happens. That's the, there it is. There is the thumbnail sketch of, of Revelation. The whole book is about Jesus coming. And so verse 11 is talking about Jesus coming, but he didn't come for the Philadelphia church in the first century, right? Or did he? No, he didn't. Okay, just seeing if you're listening. So that's verse 11. So in verse 10, is it possible that what it talks about in verse 10 hasn't happened yet? What it talks about in verse 11 hasn't happened yet. So what it talks about in verse 10 sounds really ominous too. An hour of trial on the whole world. I believe that's literally like that. That's why uh, often... Uh, students of the Bible, who love the Bible, who love the return of Christ, believe this is the, a reference to the rapture of the church. That they're actually, that, that, they're, that doesn't mean that we're going to be saved from tribulation. We're not, none of us are going to be saved from tribulation. None of us. All of us will go through tribulation. Jesus said that. He promised if you know the Lord, then you'll have tribulation, you'll have trials. But that's different than the tribulation that God is pouring out on his enemies. And he's promised you will not go through that. He has promised, you know, and some will say, well, we're there. And some will say we're gone. And we could arm wrestle about that. But this is what we can't disagree on at all. And that is God isn't going to pour judgment out on his people. 
God is not going to pour out his judgment on his people. He's not going to pour out great tribulation on children of God. And that's, listen, it's going to, he's going to pour it out on, and what's the group called that he's going to pour out great tribulation or this hour of trial on in this passage? They're, they're given kind of a designate, what are they called? Read it. Somebody help me out. What is it? What are they called? That's true. That's in verse 9, but I'm looking at verse 10 where it says, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon who? The whole world to test who? That's a technical phrase. Those who dwell on the earth. It's like, okay, so it's not going to be poured out on those who are not dwelling on the earth. It's going to be poured out on those who are dwelling on the earth. So, people who believe in what we call the pre-tribulation rapture will often point to this verse and say, hmm, there's an hour of trial, which sounds like technical language for the great tribulation, and, and these faithful people are going to be spared from it, and the other people are not going to be spared from it, are dwelling on the earth. And we won't take time to do it, but if you look in 610, 8.13, 11.10, 13.8 and 14.10, 17.8, these are all places in Revelation that use a specific title for people that are the enemies of God, that are, and they're called earth dwellers. It can mean a couple of things. One is that their whole orientation is this earth, not the new heavens and the new earth, but they're materialists. They're there. But also there are the people that are on the earth during this time. So many of us believe that Jesus is actually going to come back, but when he does, he comes in phases, if you will. He, there, we all believe, all Bible believers believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. All Bible believers, every one of them believe in a rapture, meaning that the saints go to meet him first. Now, the timing of the rapture, Christians argue about that. That's just, you know, you can get free coffee over that. You know, you can say, let's talk about that. And and they argue about that. Let me say it this way. I think it's kind of helpful to say it this way. My dad, faithful Bible teacher, through the years, I, I noticed that when he would preach, he would often say, you know, thus saith the Lord, this is what the Bible says. This is the virgin birth. If you don't believe the virgin birth, you're not saved. This is what the Bible says about the second coming. Then he would talk about the rapture, and then he would say something like this. Now, if we're right about this, notice the difference? Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Here's what I believe and practice personally. I don't make what you believe about the timing of the rapture a personal test of fellowship. See what I mean? So you might say, I think I might be going through the tribulation. I'm like, well, we're brothers. I'm sorry to hear that you feel that way. And I kind of don't think so. But, you know, we're still, I'm not going to part company with you. I'm not going to, you see what I'm saying? Not a test of fellowship. It doesn't mean you're not orthodox. It doesn't mean you don't believe the Bible. I I don't believe that way, but it's not that I'm going to have. I think that we ought to have that attitude. But I also think we ought to study the scriptures carefully. And I think this passage is interesting. I really do think, don't you think when you read it, it looks like it's talking about more than just something that's localized and small. Let me just read it again. And you tell me what you think when you hear it. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Here's what I think he's saying. And that is, I could come at any moment. And if he came in the lifetime of these people, then he would come in, in the rapture and the tribulation would begin right away. And, and, it, and, and, he's, and he wants us to think it could happen at, at any time. So it may be that that's only a reference to something that's going to happen in the future. It may be that it's only a reference to, of something that happened locally. 
Or I also believe it may be a reference to something that happened, like this often happens in Scripture. There's a local referent. There's a local and immediate thing. But it's like foreshadowing something that's going to happen in a big and complete way in the future. Did I lose you? In the Bible, you often find places like this where it says, here's a prophecy that's going to happen in the future, and it has a localized, immediate, and incomplete fulfillment, but the, but the full and complete fulfillment is in the future. And I think this is what is happening right here. But isn't that fun to talk about? Will the church go through the tribulation? Well, here's the way we can think about this. I don't think so, but here's a good way to think about it. One way is, let's prepare to go. Right? Let's prepare. Prayer is like, okay, let's, let's do, you know, let's not arrange the deck chairs on the deck of the Titanic, right? Let's not just spend our time arranging the deck chairs on a ship that's sinking. Let's rescue people, rescue people. Work on the lifeboats, don't arrange the deck chairs, right? Work on the lifeboat. Get people off the ship, it's sinking. Jesus is coming anytime. Will we go through the tribulation or not? Let's have fun arguing about that, but understand that I don't think so. But here's the, here's the real issue is like, if God would rapture the church first, and I think he will, and I'll tell you lots of reasons why as we get further, because Revelation 6 through 18 is, describes that time of tribulation, in particular, the great tribulation. A big chunk of this book is describing that time. So we should really kind of understand that time. And the church isn't mentioned during that time. The church is mentioned before that time. And the, if, there, if the four and 20 elders are a reference to the church, they're not on the earth during that time. They're around the throne in heaven. So that's a thought, right? But anyway, we'll talk a lot more about that. But for now, I just think it would be really helpful to say, okay, Jesus, you know, if we're going through the tribulation, strengthen me to obey and be faithful to you. If we're not going through the tribulation, glory be to God, how wonderful is that, you know? Um, anyway, so that's, I know you want me to be more specific. Well, we will as we get further and we study more. We certainly do, but I think it would be good for you to be thinking about that too. And so there you go. There are two things the scriptures do promise. One, you will face tribulation on earth. That's a, that's a promise. <laughs> that's a warning. It's true. And two, you will not face tribulation from God. Okay, does that make sense? God says, I want poor tribulation out of my people. But people will, we will suffer. So that's why, you, you know, if you think about it, if we're sitting around the coffee shop and we're arguing about the pre-trib rapture, the mid-trib rapture, the pre-wrath rapture, the po- you know, all the different views. And we're having our little charts out. And we're having a good time talking about that. While our brothers and sisters are being beheaded in the world, it's kind of academic whether they're going through the Great Tribulation or not, right? Would you agree? How dead is dead? If you're dead, you're, you're, you're dead. So you can write that down in your notes. That might have been the most profound thing I said today. So do you see what I'm saying? They're going through tribulation, but they're not going through tribulation at the hands of God. Revelation chapter 6 through 18 is going to, you'll see it, the orients from heaven and angels pour out bowls of wrath and judgment on the earth. Um, so anyway, we'll talk more about that. What is it he wants them to do? Verse 11, he says, hold, time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold, I would have felt a lot better if you would have said amen when I asked that. <laughs> time flies when you're having fun. You guys are like, yeah, whatever. Wow. See, you guys are brutal sometimes. And I, uh, behold, I'm coming quickly. Then he says, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. I like that. He's saying, don't let somebody rob you of what I've given you. Because you have opposition. This is what he's saying. 
Philadelphia church, you're small. They're pressing down. Don't let them take your joy from you. Don't let them take your reward from you. Don't let them take your crown. Don't let somebody take that from you, what I gave you. That's, that's beautiful. He wants, that's what he wants them to do. Hold fast so no one takes your crown. Don't let opposition rob you of your You can almost hear Jesus saying, don't look at them right now. Look at me. Don't look at them. Look at me. When, when I would play sports, my dad who loves the Lord so much and loves me very much, didn't want me to play sports that much, wanted me to do ministry stuff. And I'm glad he did that because I'm a lot better at ministry stuff than sports, trust me. And so, but, so he a lot of times didn't go to the games and the kids would kind of pick on me at school, then they kind of pick on me at sports. And we're trying to perform in sports and the kids are picking on you. You don't have any backup. You don't have any support system there. You know, it's, it's kind of hard. You know, they're making fun of you, you know, and they're, you know, you're up to, to, you know, to bat. And everybody's like, this is an easy one. Come on in, you know, Pierpont's up. Come on in, come on in. No further. He can't hit. Come on, you know. He doesn't want to hit. He's that and all that. So it, was, it wasn't good. I played third base. I remember one time I had a hot grounder come my way and I fielded it blue, blue, just cleanly, just sweet, like a, like a Masson killed kid would. Just fielded that hot grounder, fired the ball over towards first. <laughs> no, it went in the dugout and bounced around the dugout. People were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We didn't go anywhere near first base. I wasn't very good uh, at that. I remember one time my grandpa came in town, and my grandpa and my dad, and my grandpa says, let's go watch Kenny play baseball. And I was like, my grandpa's here. I didn't do any better. <laughs> I didn't. But I felt a lot better about it. Because every time I did anything, my grandpa was there and he would like say something like say, good job, Kenny. That's okay. You know, you get, you get the next one. Dust it off. You know, walk it off. Walk it off. You know, sports talk. I decided when my kids played ball, I was going to be there every time I could. And I was going to be making, I'm, not, I'm that parent, you know, making an obnoxious noise. My kid is up there to bat. I want him to hear me. You're fine. You're good. You know, I'm, the whole time. When they get knocked down and they get up and look over at the sidelines, I want to, Jesus is, we are not a better father than Jesus is. He says, you're going to be going through opposition. Don't look at them. Look at me. Don't listen to them. Listen to me. Don't let somebody take your crown. I love that. I love that. That's what he's saying. That's so beautiful. And then um, the, five, the fifth thing, the promise to those who overcome, verses 12 and 13. He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar. This is kind of interesting. I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You get why he's saying that? If the Jews are saying, you're not anywhere near the synagogue. You're not. He says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple. Go tell your Jewish buddies you're going to be a pillar in the temple and nobody's ever going to put you out. That would be kind of a good kind of trash talk to a Jewish person, wouldn't it? Hey, I'm going to be a pillar in the temple and nobody's going to put me out. So that's what Jesus says. And he's faithful and true. And he has the keys of hell and death. And who are you anyway? Yeah, so last week I think I asked the question, who's the king? And Candy Fromer back there was thinking maybe Elvis. Candy, no, 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 that's not the king. This is true. Kenny said that. I just wanted to say that. Kenny said that. It was not. So I'm glad you're here, Kenny, because Elvis is not the king. Elvis has left the building. <laughs> Jesus is the king. In case anybody's foggy on that, I figured if Candy could be misdirected, maybe you to uh, Jesus is the king. So the promise to overcome, you're like, what was that about? Well, it's just keeping you awake in church. That's what we're doing. Um. Those who overcome, look what he says. I will make him a pillar in the temple of God and he'll never be put out. Second, I will write on him the name of my God. Do you believe in tattoos? I don't know. What's that? I will write on him the name of my God. I guess if God tattoos you, it must be okay then. If God does it. Second, third, I will write on him the name of the city of my God. 
I will write on him the name of the city of my God. And then he identifies it. You know, the new Jerusalem, which will come down out of heaven from God. This is, when you get to the end of the book, you'll see, this is the ultimate world he's talking about. He says, I'm going to put on you the name of my God. I'm going to put on you the name of the city of my God. You know, the eternal and ultimate city. You, you, think it's a, you, know, you think it's bad that they're messing with you in this city? This ain't nothing. Wait until I put the name of the city of the eternal God that comes down out of heaven from God. At the end of the Bible, that's the name I'll put on you. And then he says, I will write on him the name of the city of my God, and I will write on him my new name. <laughs> Do you see what he's doing? He's saying your identity is your security. And I am your identity. And my place is your identity. And you're my people. And don't let anybody intimidate you. Don't let anybody oppose you. Don't let anybody confuse you. Don't let anybody give you another identity. Your security is in your identity. And I am your identity. And then he says in verse 13, are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Margaret Feinberg is a Christian woman speaker. And she decided that she was going to study sheep, because the Bible talks about sheep so much and shepherds and so forth. She decided she was going to study that. And uh, while she was studying that, she got on a plane. She was flying out west, and there was a girl sitting next to her, a young woman sitting next to her. And you know how you do on a plane? She's like, so what do you do? And the girl sitting next to her said, I'm a shepherd. She said, you're kidding me. I'm studying sheep and shepherd. And they kind of hit it off. She says, well, come out to my place, and, and we'll just turn into a bed and breakfast. And you can hang out with me, and I'll show you what it is. And so she did. She, she flew out there to uh, Portland, Oregon, and then she went out to this gal's place. And then she got a pair of boots, and they hiked up into the mountains where the sheep were. And when they got close to the flock, the, girl, the shepherd girl started to whisper. She didn't talk out loud. And Margaret said, why are we whispering? And the shepherd said, because if they hear my voice, they will all come running. How can you tell if a person is a Christian? Listen to the shepherd. How can you tell if a person's not a Christian? They don't listen to the shepherd. I'm all ears, God. When you're talking, I'm listening. Let's hear. And so, okay, what's the, what is the, uh, the letter to the church in Taylor for this week? Don't worry, this will only take me about 45 minutes. One, it doesn't matter how big your enemies are or how small you are. Two, it doesn't matter how strong your enemies are or how weak you are. The polls say, most people believe, it's okay to do this or be that. Well, they forgot to ask Jesus what he thought. That's what matters. It doesn't matter how strong your enemies are, how many of them are. Okay, so that's the letter of the church. It doesn't matter how numerous your enemies are or how few your allies are. If Jesus is for you, it doesn't matter if your enemies are big. If Jesus is for you, it doesn't matter if your enemies are strong. If Jesus is for you, it doesn't matter if your enemies outnumber you. Jesus is for you. That's kind of cool, isn't it? It doesn't matter how wealthy your enemies are or how poor you are. I'm in the mountains of Kentucky this week. Late in the week, I went down in the mountains of Kentucky in the most beautiful, 20 miles from where Lois was born. There's a mission called the Kentucky Mountain Mission. And they have a Youth Haven Bible Camp and the Kentucky Mountain Mission. And they're just the sweetest people. I got there and I knew it was going to be good because the, uh, the first thing that they did was they met at 6 o'clock to eat. And we went in and there was scalloped corn and there was 
banana nut bread. You know you're going to have a weekend if there's scallop corn and banana nut bread. And there's like dear old people. I sit across the table from a pastor who'd been in the ministry for years and years and years and went to Moody Bible Institute back in the 40s and had famous Kenneth Wiest, a Greek scholar, was his teacher. So we talked for a long time. The next day they sent me across from another elderly fellow and he just was, eyes were so lively. He's just full of life. He's very old. I'm not going to tell you how old, because then if you're that old, you'd be mad at me. But he was like very old, and his eyes were just full of life. And he had a voice that had obviously been used a lot for the Lord because he had a resonance in his voice. And his wife was there with him, and they'd been married for a very long time. And I noticed that she liked him, and she liked being with him. And I was like, that's interesting, you know. The guy must be a good egg, right? And he told me, he said, well, I was born in California. I went to Biola to school, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, right? He said, and then somebody came from the Kentucky Mountain Mission and they said, the, the schools of Kentucky are open to the gospel. They're one-room schoolhouses all over the mountains of eastern Kentucky. If you can get to them, you can give those kids the gospel. So he said, I went to the mountains of eastern Kentucky with my wife. And I got an old Jeep and I would drive through those mountains and I would go through the creeks and I would go over the mountains and I would find the... He says, sometimes I go down the wrong path. I get shot at by people with moonshine stills. He had stories to tell. It was fascinating. 65 years. This old guy went to the... They said that, he said they consolidated the schools. He said it got so that he could speak to twenty or 30,000 students a year himself. For 65 years he did that. So I said to him, how did you make your money? How did you pay your bills? He said, I trust to the Lord. I said, can you be more specific? <laughs> like, it's more interesting if you're more specific. He said, well, it was just like this. I prayed and then people donated stuff and then we just worked. We did whatever we could. We never had anything, but God took care of us. He said, well, I'll only tell you a story. He said, one time when, when our first daughter was born and we were just new, I was really concerned about whether, you know, I didn't mind sacrificing and my wife didn't mind sacrificing, but now we had a little girl. And if we didn't have food and we were adults, we could go without food. But if we have a little baby and we go without food, then it might be really bad. He said, one day we were out of milk and I didn't have any money. I didn't have anything. And I was in despair and I thought, well, there's a little country store down the road. And I could go down to that country store and I could ask him to give me credit. And I know that they would do it. So he said, he just knew that's what he had to do. So he said he walked down the long lane by the house where they was living. He walked down the long lane. When he got to the road, he started to turn down the road toward the country store. And he thought, well, I haven't checked the mail. So he went over there and he opened a mailbox. There was a letter from California. His next door neighbor, across the street neighbor, was a boy that had a paper route. And he put enough money in the envelope. It was a tithe from his paper route. It was just exactly enough money to buy the milk that he needed. And he says, and from that day on, he says, I got down on my knees in a gravel and I told God, I will never doubt you again. If God is for you, it doesn't matter if you're poor. You guys missed the amen spot right there. I can't, I'm a little surprised. And you're saying you should have been done a long time ago. And if he loves you, it doesn't matter who hates you. And this says in verse 9, I love this. He says, all of that, they're going to come, they're going to bow before your feet and worship me to know that I have loved you. The theme of the book is the return of Christ. So much about our lives falls into place when we think continually about the return of Christ. We're going to sing about that right now. And then because it's this week on the 11th, I think it's Wednesday, is Veterans Day. We have a little special, uh, Grace Cote is going to come and she's got a, a word of testimony that we want her to share with you today. And she has a special burden for veterans. 
and uh, of course, is a service member herself, and and her dad and brother, of course. And so she's going to come after after we sing. You listen to her testimony. uh, You'll you'll be encouraged, and then we'll she will close our service in prayer.